Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 6. After the Easter time, we'll get back to our study of the Gospel of Matthew. Today we come to chapter 6, verses 7 to 10. As we return to the study, uh, we come to the familiar passage which includes the Lord's Prayer. That's always a challenge for a pastor to come to something like the Lord's Prayer, because I suspect there's no one here this morning who is unfamiliar with the Lord's Prayer. Indeed, many of you memorized it as a child and can quote it verbatim right this moment. If you studied the catechism as a child, as I know some of you did, you undoubtedly, that undoubtedly, whichever catechism it was, included a line-by-line, line, petition-by-petition discussion of the Lord's Prayer. You know a lot. That does not mean there's no reason to examine it today. Martin Luther once said, the Lord's Prayer is the greatest martyr on earth. It is a pity above all pities that such a prayer by such a master should be so terribly abused. Many pray the Lord's Prayer a thousand times a year. And though they pray it for a thousand years, yet they have not properly prayed one letter thereof. So this morning we're going to examine it. We're going to begin with chapter, with verse 7, which is related to the prayer. A couple of introductory things. We looked at one of them the last time in verse six, 5 and 6, and then verse 7. And then we'll study the first half of the prayer itself this morning. Let me read it. Picking up with verse 7 down to verse 10. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think that will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Two truths this morning. Um, We already looked at verses 5 and 6. That looked at the tendency the tendencies of the, the hypocritical Pharisees and how they prayed uh, to be heard by other people, praying publicly in, this, in the marketplace rather than in their closet praying to the Lord. You may recall that the point there was don't pray to your piety. But in verse 7 and 8, a different problem is addressed, and that is the practices of the pagans, for people pray all over the world. And so our first point will concern that, verse 7 and 8. And the point will be, Pray in a manner worthy of the Lord. Pray in a manner worthy of the Lord. This issue of unworthy prayer is explained two ways in these verses. Praying by the repetition of empty phrases, it's translated babbling here, and prayer that assumes that the more words, the better the prayer. Now, there are lots of examples of such prayers in the world. Let me mention a few. The Tibetan prayer wheel that offers such prayer, by which they offer such prayers. These prayer wheels consist of an apparatus with a little cylinder that spins inside, and on that cylinder are written repeatedly, many, 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 many times, a, a, a few words, a simple mantra. So the person with the prayer wheel repeats that mantra with his own mouth, at the same time spinning the wheel. 
And the result is that the mantra is then repeated not just once as it's uttered out of his mouth, but hundreds and hundreds of times as he spins the prayer wheel. Really efficient. Many words. Prayer flags are thought to do the same thing. Mantra is written on a piece of cloth and hung on a line. And as the wind blows, words are scattered much more effectively than if a person were speaking those words. Muslims, on the other hand, are very personally involved in their praying. But again, repetition is the key. Five times a day they're called to prayer. And five times a day the prayer consists of the exact same words repeated in the exact same order, and re-repeated in the same order. And the endless other examples of how people pray in many cultures and every people on the face of the earth. But Jesus says that vain repetition of empty phrases is not praying in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now, as Christians, you can feel smugly self-righteous about this. But if you do, it only shows you haven't been around Christian prayers much. For Christians have long traditions of vain repetition of empty phrases passing for prayer. They're high church traditions, liturgies that never change, which can be repeated at warp speed without ever crossing the mind. When I was a high school kid. I lived in New Orleans for a while. And every afternoon they had somebody prayed the rosary on the radio. I was amazed how fast you could get through that thing. And then there are low church traditions. I've been to many Pentecostal prayer meetings in my days. People all praying aloud at the same time. Sometimes in words that make no sense to themselves or anyone else. It is hard to describe that scene, if you've ever been there. Hard to describe that as anything but babbling. And then, folks, there's our own tradition. The same prayers. The same words. Repeated with less thought than if you were ordering a hamburger. And then God's name. Perhaps some little phrase like, oh, Lord God. And we ask, oh, Lord God, that you, oh, Lord God, would see to this problem, oh, Lord God. Twenty times maybe in five sentences. Really? Vain repetition? You would never talk to your father that way. And that's exactly the point. Prayer that is worthy of the Lord addresses him as our father in heaven. What a privilege we have. Even Old Testament saints seldom, if ever, called God their father. It is in Jesus, God's son, who had the right to address God this way. And granted to us the privilege of addressing him as our father. To address God who takes pleasure in us because we're related to his son. Indeed, to address him with the familiar language that Jesus alone had a right to use. Abba. Papa. Daddy. 
and according to verse 8, this father doesn't need us begging or browbeating or shouting to get his attention. This father knows his own. He already knows what we need. And so we come to the father not to inform him, but to enjoy his presence. We're not making a sales call when we come. We're not trying to get through to our senile, senile old grandfather who can't understand much. We're not playing, let's make a deal with God. Jesus already made the deal. He took our sin. He gave us his standing, which allows us to share his father and to come assured that we're loved and we're accepted. So pray in a manner worthy of the Lord, worthy of the grace of Jesus. Pray in a manner that comes to the Father. That's the first truth we have here. But then as we get into the prayer itself, there's a second truth I want us to consider. And that truth is this. Pray about God's concerns. I should say pray first about God's concerns. We'll get to our concerns later next week. Pray about God's concerns. This prayer, which we call the Lord's Prayer, is found twice in the Gospels. It's found here in Matthew 6, and it's also found in Luke 11. In Luke, the prayer is, announced, is, is introduced with these words. When you pray, say, our Father who art in heaven, etc. That suggests that in that setting, when Jesus was talking about this, and Jesus probably said this lots of times in lots of places, but in that setting, he was giving them a formal prayer that they could pray together, as we often use this prayer. We say together, our Father who art in heaven. Okay. But here in Matthew, it's introduced with different words. Here, it's, here Jesus says, this is how you should pray. This is how you should pray. That suggests that Jesus was not giving us a formal prayer for us to pray together, but he was giving us a pattern for all of our praying. So let's look at the pattern. Like the Ten Commandments, this pattern divides into two parts, God's things and our things. God's concerns, his name, his reign, and his will, and our needs. Give us, forgive us, deliver us. It's those first concerns, God's concerns, which we're going to talk about this morning. John Stott makes an interesting observation about all this in his commentary on this. He says, if our concept of God were of some impersonal force, then, of course, he would have no personal name, rule, or will to be concerned about. Again, if we were to think of him as the ultimate within ourselves or the ground of our being, it would be impossible to distinguish his concerns from our concerns. But he is, in reality, our Father in heaven. The personal God of love and power, fully revealed in Christ Jesus, creator of all, who cares about the creatures he has made and the children he has redeemed. Then and only then does it become possible, indeed essential, to give his concerns priority and to become preoccupied with his name and his kingdom and his will. So we're to pray, first of all, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. When we speak of God's name, 
We're not just talking about letters put together that make a sound and that's a tag that refers to God. No, God's name is a reference to God's disclosure of himself. So when God declared that he has chosen for his name to dwell in Zion, what he was saying is, I plan to dwell in Jerusalem. So if God is holy, and he is, then his name is already holy as he is holy. So for what are we praying when we pray, hallowed be your name, or let your name be sanctified or set apart as holy? What are we praying? Certainly it's proper to pray that we and the people of the earth would treat God's name as holy, not to blaspheme, not to use his name as a curse, not to speak lightly of him. But the New Testament professor Douglas Hare pointed out that this is an indirect command, just like give us this day our daily bread. And that God, not us, is the subject of this action. The one we're calling on to show his name to be holy. That's what happened to Isaiah, remember? In Isaiah 6, God showed Himself holy in a vision to Isaiah. And what happened? Isaiah said, woe is me. And he repented and he submitted himself unconditionally to God. So it's proper for us to pray that God would do that again and again and again and again. For we can argue God's existence and and, and his perfections until we're blue in the face. And we ought to contend for the faith. But it may do no good. But when God shows himself holy, people fall down and worship him. Jesus is teaching us to petition God to demonstrate the holiness of his name. Second thing, praying your kingdom come. That's a similar request. This is another indirect command with God being the subject of the action. In other words, we might read it, let your kingdom come. Professor Douglas Hare notes that it was the theologian Karl Barth who most forcibly insisted that the idea so dear to liberal Christians of building God's kingdom on earth is an expression of bad theology. The biblical writers make it clear that only God can bring his kingdom. Our task is to pray for it and wait. We cannot build the kingdom of God on earth because even our best efforts toward peace and justice and community are compromised by sin. Only God can bring the ultimate transformation that includes the radical annulment of sin. If you don't think that's true, look around you at those whose political agenda is is peace and justice and community. We're going to build the kingdom of God on earth. It's not working well. But the Lord does not just suggest that we sit back and say, not my problem. The Lord teaches us to embrace his plan, his vision, his goal, and pray, Father... Let your kingdom come upon the earth. 
That's what David did in Psalm 110. That's what he says about Messiah's reign. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. David was not trying to orchestrate the coming of Messiah's kingdom. God had already promised that. And this is what the apostles do as well. They did not go around twisting arms, trying to gather delegates in order to get God acknowledged as king. Oh, no. They went around announcing, Jesus is risen from the dead. He is alive and his kingdom is assured. And so the Lord Jesus calls us to embrace his kingdom plans, to pray that he would do what he has promised to do, to wait expectantly, to put our hope nowhere else, and to submit ourselves to the king, to his word and his rule. Embrace God's plan for his kingdom and pray to see the day. And finally, God calls us to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, to think that somehow our prayers are going to bring about God's will flies in the face of God's word. The scriptures repeatedly make a point of God's absolute sovereignty. We read in Psalm 115, our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Job didn't understand the Lord, but he knew God was sovereign. He said, he stands alone, and who can oppose him? He does whatever he pleases. And in Daniel 4, we read how King Nebuchadnezzar learned the hard way until he admitted, and this is a quote, God's dominion is an an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the people on the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. Who No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? So what on earth are we praying when we pray, your will be done? Of course God's will will be done. It always is done. He does whatever he pleases and no one can stop him. (laughs) Well, this may be the most important thing we need to learn about prayer. Prayer is not an attempt to get God to do our will or even his will. Prayer is our coming to submit to God doing his will. Consider Jesus in Gethsemane. Jesus knew it was the Father's will for him to go to the cross that had been foreordained before the foundation of the world, and he was in on that, uh, on that decree. But in the garden, in the face of terrible humiliation and the prospect of terrible suffering, Jesus prayed, submitting himself to the Father's will. Not my will, but yours be done. And that's how we're called to pray, too. Not trying to twist God's arm to get him to do what we want. Not even trying to help God get his will accomplished. But submitting ourselves to his plans and embracing his will, no matter what the cost to us might be. Oh, we're so often caught up in all of our needs and all of our desires. And they fill our prayers. 
But here the pattern is much different. Here we admit that God's concerns trump even our concern for daily bread. About 1700, Benjamin Schmock expressed this well in a hymn. My Jesus, as thou art, oh, may thy will be mine. Into thy hand of love I would my all resign. Through sorrow or through joy, conduct me as thine own and help me still to say, my Lord, thy will be done. Or to put it more simply, I read that at a meeting of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, Bobby Richardson, former New York Yankee second baseman, offered a prayer that is classic in its brevity and poignancy. He prayed, Dear God, your will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Amen. That's where praying for God's concerns takes us. Isaiah chapter 1, the Lord told the ancient, his ancient people Israel that he couldn't stand their prayers. He was no longer listening. He considered their efforts a trampling of his courts. You see, it's not enough for everyone to just pray as he sees fit to God as he perceives him. God is not impressed. And so Jesus teaches us to pray. He teaches us to pray in a manner worthy of of the Lord, not how everyone else prays, in a matter worthy of the Lord, whom we call our Father. And he teaches us to first pray about God's concerns, not our concerns. Not telling what God what to do, but conforming our hopes and our expectations and our plans to his will. Dear people, God has opened the door for us to sit with our Heavenly Father one-on-one, to consider the glory of his holy name and his kingdom rule and his will, his sovereign will over everything and submit ourselves to it. That's what praying is about. Amen. Let's pray. Father, when we think about these things, we realize... And for all the prayers we've offered, maybe we've hardly learned to pray at all. We bring you our grocery lists. We beg you to do things that we've determined are wiser than whatever you're doing. We chided you because you didn't do what we thought ought to happen. We accused you sometimes. Oh, Father. Give us the heart of our Savior, no matter what our situation, to pray, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In his name we pray. Amen.